Welcome back, Coffin Bond listeners. Uh, it's a different voice uh, behind the waves today. Uh, my name is Vaughan, and I'm uh, joining the podcast for my second appearance. Uh, Jamie's quite busy at the moment, as he always is. I'm joined by Tony here for podcast 132. Tony? It'll be nice for the listeners to be able to actually understand what the interviewer is actually asking. You do have a good voice for radio there, Vaughan. <laughs> well, a good head for radio, I think, is uh, what I've heard. But <laughs> uh, it's, it's not what your girlfriend would say, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Tony, today we're talking property. Um, specifically, uh, we're talking commercial property and, and asset allocation to property within portfolios. Mm. Um, well, there's obviously been a lot of talk about it, particularly um, with our clients and um, and definitely a space that we're um, quite conscious of with the changing um, working arrangements with commercial property and, and vacancy rates. Firstly, starting from the top, why do uh, super funds and particularly industry super funds have allocations to property? It's, it's interesting that we were at a uh, conference a couple of years ago when we were able to be here in Melbourne. It was run by Morningstar and Morningstar had a couple of the industry funds up there on stage and when it was actually queried why industry funds class property as a defensive asset and they said basically because the growth is just there and it just goes up uh, but it's not valued on a daily basis and they have very strong income flows from, from rent. So industry super funds were uh, classing property as a defensive asset. Now under our AFSL with COUNT, there is no way known we could ever uh, class property as a defensive asset. And the reasons being is because it's got both growth and income. And if something's got both growth and income like shares, et cetera, even infrastructure, uh, it's classed as a growth asset. So we didn't believe that it was a defensive asset whatsoever. And also to uh, having seen and go, having gone through the global financial crisis where I saw property syndicates and hard asset properties just get absolutely smashed and industry super funds ended up with liquidity issues as a result. The MTAA had to actually stop all redemptions, etc. So, so based on that, uh, there was a concern. In saying that though, having hard property assets, illiquid property assets, uh, in other words, owning buildings, uh, what that has actually done is it has smoothed out returns. And one of the reasons being is industry super funds, they don't have to put a valuation on those properties on a daily basis like shares do. Yeah. So shares on any given day can rise, you know, half a percent or drop half a percent, even more on any given day. So you know the unit price and you know the exact value of your fund and your investment if you are in uh, shares, you know, and even uh, real estate investment trusts are actual shares. So you know the value of those on any given day. So it actually does some move out returns and sometimes that can give you a bit of false sense of security in falling markets. And because the only reason uh, that the returns have been smoothed out is purely because those properties have not been revalued at that period of time. Yeah. But they usually, you know, if you've got good tenancy rates, they usually do provide uh, very good and very strong income flow. Yeah, and we may have even seen that with the valuations of um, certain super funds in terms of a lag in the uh, the downturn in the markets of the, at the start of 2020 with COVID in that some industry funds returns actually didn't drop as quickly as uh, more liquid portfolios because the properties weren't valued, weren't revalued at that time. 
Yeah, it was actually quite interesting that um, Australian Super, as an example, um, they froze redemptions from their property portfolio. So if you had exposure to property of Australian Super, you could not redeem your funds out of that. So they actually froze redemptions. And one of the reasons why they froze redemptions is because it's an illiquid portfolio. So let's say, for example, if they were to own a billion dollars worth of hard assets, properties in there, and everyone all of a sudden you had you know, 20, 30% of, and only held say 5% cash and the rest is hard assets, and just even 20% of, because remember during that time, the government did allow people to redeem $10,000 of their superannuation fund. Um, so if that actually was the case, all of a sudden those hard assets, people would say, I want to redeem out of property, I'm scared, no one's allowed into the city, etc. Mm-hmm. They can't, they don't have the cash to do it. They actually have to start selling those properties and if you start selling a mass amount of properties just to meet redemptions basically that can you can end up having to do fire sales and that's what happened during the global financial crisis is banks were uh, the caveats over loans where it might have been for example 60 or 70 percent equity and so 30 to 40 percent um uh, loans or debt in there, all of a sudden the properties got revalued to say 15, 20% less than what their original book value was. Their debt to equity ratio has now dropped to 40, 60 or 50, 50 in breach of the covenants on their loans. And all of a sudden the banks say, well, we're increasing default interest rates. We're increasing the interest rate from 4%, you know, 35 or 4% up to 7% or we're just not renewing your loans. You have to start selling those properties. And that's actually what happened during the GFC. We've, you know, most people send it along short and they see that on residential property, but this actually happened in the commercial property sector. So Australian Super, Australia's largest superannuation fund, put a freeze on redemptions of property. And then a week after that, devalued the fund by 7.5% across the board. Now, not every property would have dropped by 75 Some would have dropped by more in value. Some, uh, some might not have dropped as much. They just put a straight devaluation, and that's where you saw the sharp decline. Yeah. So you might have seen a lag for a couple of months after the share market came down and say their fund looked okay, but then they did a revaluation with a 7.5% uh, uh, decline in unit price. That's when you saw yeah. a big drop all of a sudden mm-hmm. hit that because those funds do take up in some case, uh, 20 to 30% of the funds allocation. Yeah. So when you consider that the share market was down, then they've done a devaluation of that, it, you had a quarter there, so a six month period where they did get flogged. Yeah. So and rightfully so. So what then does a, a liquid portfolio look like? Can, can you have- In respect a, to property? Yeah. Yeah, so a real estate in? investment trust. So as an example, you can you can actually buy an ETF, uh, say that just follows a real estate investment trust, and that's just like buying a share or a managed fund that is a property. And that's just buying shares in liquid property. So as an example, we'll use uh, Westfield as an example. Westfield uh, is a shopping centre. Westfield has, you know, it was, it was listed on the stock exchange. And basically, uh, if you have a look at Westfield shares, it could go up and down on any given value. Now, Westfield shares were backed by an asset, being the property, being the shop, being the shopping centre. And then they also had an income. Now, they actually had two forms of income shopping centres do. So they have uh, income from rent, but also, uh, also as a percentage of turnover. Mm. 
Okay. So a real estate investment trust is liquid. It can be sold at any given day on the market. Yeah. Uh, so if there is a run on it, it basically someone bought it for a dollar and is willing to sell it for eighty cents. They can. So you can. So you can have that type of exposure. You don't have to own the entire building like an illiquid portfolio actually would. So, so based on that, uh, when we did have exposure to property. It was through the REITs, the Real Estate Investment Trust, both in Australia and globally. So in other words, the portfolio was liquid at all times, which, as you know, is a rule that I set in here. Absolutely. 100% of the portfolio must be liquid at all times. We did get stuck in some rubbish during the GFC. Uh, well, there was one actually where it wasn't rubbish, but the fro- uh, they froze redemptions. And that was just the AMP High Yield uh, Fund, which was basically paying 2% more, and it was just corporate debt. Uh, but basically what was happening is people were doing a run and wanting to redeem the money, but they couldn't go back to Thames Water and say, can we have our $500 million back because Kofkin wants his money back. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's uh, so based on that, uh, they had to do a freeze on redemptions. And that's, that's what happens in the property market. So REITs got smashed during the GFC. They lost nearly 70% in value, but they were still liquid. They yeah. could still be sold or bought on any given day. Yeah, and we're seeing even issues now with the illiquid property. We touched on how they were revalued towards the start or, or mid-2020, but even in the last 12 months, um, there's obviously vacancy rates in CBDs all around the world um, are quite high. I think foot traffic uh, in global cities, foot traffic's down over 60% from pre-pandemic levels. Um, so it just in the last 12 months, you know, I, I guess what, what's sort of been happening with the liquid property and in terms of valuations going forward? I'll, I'll just give you a couple. Well, let's just talk Melbourne. Uh, yeah. Melbourne's most relevant to the majority of our listeners uh, or Melbourne and Sydney, but let's just talk Melbourne. Um, I went down to Madame Brussels Lane to go and get my salad for lunch and that's where the Telstra building is and one of the government buildings are and it's a ghost town not a person to be seen and of the 10 stores down there I think there's only three that are open uh, and two of them sell coffee Mm. so basically there's no one in those buildings and we're talking you know 30 35 story buildings yeah at the moment the Melbourne uh, the Melbourne occupancy rate people going into work into the buildings in Melbourne CBD is the lowest it has been since records were kept uh, which I think is since 2002 we currently have an occupancy rate of 6%. That is horrific. So yeah. it's uh, Melbourne usually runs at an occupancy rate of about 92% in mm-hmm. respect to commercial buildings. We're currently at 6%. That's the lowest it's ever been. Previous low to that was uh, August last year, which was 7%. So what you've actually seen is a, compl- a complete period of time where people are no longer going. Now, we've got some huge uh, multinational firms now which are actually uh, giving back whole floors and just saying we don't need any more. They basically weren't locked into those leases and actually giving back. So you've seen iconic buildings in Melbourne now that have got you know a quarter or a third of their building actually empty. Uh, we're talking real iconic buildings, so where everyone would love to be in. So based on that, all of a sudden there's not that rent coming in. We're talking you know floor plates where the rent is you know over two million dollars a year. Yeah. So when you've got several of those floors empty on a 25-storey building, that's huge in respect to cash flow, especially if there's debt attached to that. So all of a sudden, if there's no income coming in, they're scrambling to try and get tenants. Yeah. Um, and based on that, if you're scrambling, these are all the red flags that are coming up. First of all, there's no one in the CBD. 
Uh, so the and it's just it's not just that. It's also been a case of uh, after sort of twelve to eighteen months of stop start lockdowns, everyone hasn't raced back. These are uh, lifestyle changes that are. I mean, the jury's still out as to what going forward what the the changes will be will, will they ever get filled these floors? well would you, well i'll give you an example is uh just prior to this meeting we were uh doing a review meeting for one of our clients in sydney and he's just got himself a new job uh hello scott and uh he went into so he's been working there for about four months now he went into the office yesterday for the very first time to meet some of his work colleagues he was in there for one day and then the building was uh, locked down and he had to go home and self-isolate because apparently somebody went to the gym who had COVID. Mm-hmm. So the whole, so he, now they, they only had like, a, for example, 15% of the staff that actually turned up there. But he went in, got to meet some colleagues and things like that. And after being two years of not being able to work or working from home, he after one day, he was sent home again. Um, his uh, fiance, she works at Ernst & Young and she for the last two years has been working from home uh, so she's quite high up there at Ernst and Young and she is now goes into the office basically two days a week and she's working from home three days a week and that's what she's doing and this is this is the new normal so we're not just yeah. talking uh, when we have a look at you know that sort of vacancy rate they're saying well I can still get as much done uh, but I can go for my bike ride in the morning and come home and work in my tracksuit all day or to Sydney, mm. so they're shorts yeah. <laughs> all day. So so the basis of that is that's that new dynamic that we're actually starting to see here as well. So even though the City of Melbourne is saying we want to get back to 45%, uh, Melbourne City Council said they've got 1,600 staff, they're saying they're encouraging all of their employees to come back and work from the office. We saw IWOF who they had employees turn around and say we don't want to come back. Yeah. Um, and one of the reasons why was they were told uh, basically they're coming back and somebody sent an email and said well I look after my 90 year old elderly mother I'm not going back into the city catching COVID and coming home and killing my mum and if that if you force me to come back I will sue you mm. so all of a sudden there's this blanket across okay you can only come back if you want to now Yeah. so these are we're talking once again companies that take up five or six floors in these large buildings that all of a sudden now they've got two to three floors actually empty because people are only coming into work a couple of days a week yeah. i know moore's accounting they're they've got they're allowing staff to work from home two days a week but those neither of those two days according to their ceo steve is allowed to be either a monday or friday there were too many long weekends yeah. <laughs> they found productivity was a little bit less if yeah. people were working from home on mondays or fridays so yeah well as you say it, it would have been a lot easier pre-pandemic uh for businesses to force all staff to come in every day because now yeah. i mean there's always going to be some reason uh to some reason for working from home mm. and once it's okay for someone then it's it has to be okay for everyone and this this is a concern the red flags that i actually see starting to go up now is that is that if when you think about it if you've got a large property trust and that large property trust owns that big building out of this window here as an example um, now that property trust can own that building if all of a sudden there's you know 30 percent vacancy rate in that building they've got bank debt attached to that yeah so having bank debt attached to that building the banks are going to come in and say okay we've been lenient for a while now 
but you're not renting out these properties. All of a sudden, the rent is getting squeezed. There's no income getting paid to investors or income is reduced substantially because rent is reduced substantially uh, because they're still having to meet all repayments. The bank comes in and says, guys, we're going to start doing revaluations on all the property portfolio. The bank revalues those property and even just a 10% downgrading on you know, a 30, 40, 50, $80 million building is huge. Yeah. And especially when it comes to those bank covenants as well. So all of a sudden they say, we're charging more interest because you're now high risk. That's even less income that's now going to paying the overheads or their staff and then paying a dividend uh, to the investors. All of a sudden you potentially got some fire sales coming the, in, into the uh, city. The concern I have then with a red flag with some of the, um, the industry superannuation funds is that their buildings have been bought by members' money. Now, there might be debt attached to that as well, but all of a sudden, if the banks are coming in and offering unfavourable loan terms, now, I don't know, but does that mean they can then go and use more members' money to replace the bank's debt and what interest rate is then the members getting? And, of course, those funds are then not being allocated to other growth assets, liquid growth assets like shares, etc. So... This is this is just that bit of a concern. Now, they, they do have, I'm not saying go and do a rush on the industry super funds because they do have to have, they are regulated uh, yeah. or in superannuation funds are and they do have very strict guidelines that the directors have to abide by. But in saying that, this is the concern that I'm having is banks might be not as forthcoming as what happened in the GFC in actually loaning money and might ask, actually ask start asking for Sam, go and get finance elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're giving you six months to refinance this book that we have with you or refinance part of the debt uh, that we have with you. And this is what happened prior to the GFC. The banks were fro- throwing money at property groups uh, and then all of a sudden the GFC hit and they're saying, yeah, it's because those, long, those loans are like only three to five years and in favorable markets, uh, usually the proprietor wants a less a lower term so they can go and renegotiate every time. Yeah. But all of a sudden those three-year caveat was up or the three-year loan term was up and, and the banks come in saying, sorry, we're not renewing, get it elsewhere. Other banks are saying, we're not providing any loans. Uh, so they're forced to sell and they're, what are they doing? They're selling at substantially lower mm. rates. There's a lot of red flags. I'm not saying we're going to see a commercial property collapse here in Australia. What I am saying is that there's a lot of empty buildings right now and there's a lot of red flags coming up. We have got historically low interest rates here. Realistically, there's you know 98% chance of interest rates rising, uh, not lowering, mm-hmm. uh, not reducing. Yeah. So, so based on that, these are a lot of these red flags that I see in the illiquid property market, which is why... We have zero exposure to property right now. And that's a conversation we have with clients when they ask why we don't have any any property and a lot of industry funds do. Uh, Well, all industry funds do. Well, you can can take that contrarian uh, approach where it's a case of, you know, well, the market's dropped substantially because, you know, some of these uh, property funds, the REITs and that have had good quarters and gone up quite well for the quarter. Yeah. But in saying that, people are starting to rush back into them for the simple reason they're saying, oh, well, the world's opening up again, yeah. and let's have a look what's happening." But, but if the you have ways a look at the US, have changed. Oh, absolutely. So mm. if you have a, now, if if you take for example, uh, one of the co-working spaces, I was just speaking to their founder, uh, Toby Scovron from Creative Cubes, 
And Toby has just opened a new co-working space in Carlton. Uh, beautiful, absolutely beautiful the way they've set it up as they do. So they, they stick to the suburbs, so in Carlton, South Melbourne, South Yarra. Um, they look very nice well. They do look beautiful. But in, so, so they're not like WeWorks, which is, say, in the CBD. They're actually the suburbs in around. Suburbs. Yeah, in yeah. a suburb surround, where they do have a lot of office use already. Mm-hmm. And if you have a look at uh, Toby as an example, whereas we've got 6% uh, occupancy rate in the CBD right now, and we, so we've got properties leased out, but only 6% of uh, people going back to work in yeah, the CBD. Yeah, only at 6% capacity. Yep. Yeah. Carlton has been open now for three weeks, you're telling me today. And it, they usually take 18 months to be at 100% occupancy. That's what they usually do. He's at 45% occupancy, just 600 metres that way yeah. and 200 metres that way, uh, where it's 6%, where it's 6% <laughs> occupancy. Yeah. He's at 45% occupancy within the first three weeks. Yeah, wow. That's an example where people say, you know what, I'm happy for my sales force just to work from co-working spaces, whereas they can work from any of his co-working spaces all around Melbourne as an example. So this is the new shift and the new dynamic that we're actually starting to see where companies are saying, hold on, if I can save $5 million in a year in rent or $500,000 a year in rent and all my staff are just as efficient... Uh, well then, why wouldn't I be doing that? Yeah, and it still provides them a central place to meet up, ha- have meetings in person if needed. Um, so there's definitely benefits to it. There are there are certainly those benefits to it as well. So, so based on that, there are some you know very compelling reasons of why teams work better together uh, when we're all in the office together. You can come and you know see that uh, I've got five seconds to take a breath and ask me a question. Yeah. <laughs> um, and but basically, it's a case of you don't have necessarily those options when you're working remotely and also it can be quite lonely but that's where these co-working spaces like creative cubes have done a magnificent job of creating a real atmosphere for people to work and and they've got large companies that are leasing spaces off them uh, so we're not just talking you know a smaller company like Ofcom bond they've got some large multinational companies that are leasing spaces off them so for their sales force as an example so they can drop in and quickly work out or have a meeting in the Hawthorne one or go to the Carlton one etc not having to be in their CBD office and fight traffic um, all the time even though it's a ghost town here in Melbourne at the yeah. moment so, <laughs> yeah. so yes uh, the reason why we're not taking a contrarian view look how cheap it is let's go flooding into it because we are concerned about valuations coming down dramatically and as a result of that we're actually steering clear that does look cheap at the moment but we're steering clear of property because there are a few red flags and concerns. And for me, capital preservation is far more important than locking someone into something that looks cheap right now. Very interesting. Interesting times in the property space. Thanks a lot for your time, Tony. Thank you, Vaughan. Coffin Bond Podcast is a product from Coffin Bond & Co, which we are an authorised representative of Can Financial. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal or tax advice. The hosts of the Coffin Bond Podcast are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Before making any financial decision, you should read the product disclosure statement and if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. 
do not take financial advice from the podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Kofkin Pond website, or you can find resources on the ASIC website and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Kofkin Bond and Co. and the host of the Kofkin Bond podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of the country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today.